This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado, and I'm Julia Cardi. In this episode, we look at a new state office that's been years in the making. Advocates talk about why the Office of Public Guardianship took nearly three years to start operating and what it might come up against for the legislature to keep funding it. One of my first statements is always that I hate guardianship. I just hate it, even though that's my capacity and my agency. Um, I really, and, and again, I come from an advocacy organization. I want to protect every single right that we can protect for people. And while the guardianship statute is written very loose that people should be able to be involved in decisions and should have some of that autonomy and self-determination, that doesn't always happen for folks. Guardianship is a system for adults who, for some reason, can't make legal decisions for themselves. That can mean people with disabilities, elderly people who have declined cognitively, people experiencing homelessness, a range of situations. In Colorado, petitions for guardianship go through the probate courts. Public guardianship serves people who don't have family or friends to step in to make decisions for them, or who can't afford a private guardian. A Nine News investigation previously found that incapacitated adults sometimes just languish in hospitals if no one steps in to take charge of their care. But Colorado didn't have a public guardianship system until last year. A 2019 bill got the Office of Public Guardianship up and running. The pilot program just covers Denver right now. Sophia Alvarez started as the office's executive director in October. The OPG started taking referrals for clients at the end of April. Alvarez has hired four people as guardians and one support staff member. She said national guidelines recommend a public guardian should have a maximum caseload of 20 wards at a time. So that would mean an 80-case capacity for the office. The OPG has developed a case management system to track information like how many intakes the office does and awards residents history to show they have a place to live. Since the pilot program just covers Denver right now, Alvarez said the system also has a simplified option for referrals that come from outside the county in an effort to track the need for public guardianship across Colorado. Keeping track of unmet needs isn't black and white, but we'll get to that later. Guardians may need to make decisions on behalf of their clients about things like medical care, where to live, and finances. An ideal guardianship situation allows the person to retain as much independence as possible. A guardian would know their client and their needs well. They would proactively evaluate the person's capacity and ask the court to roll back or expand the guardianship if it's warranted. But guardianship, when you look at it as a whole system from the probate courts to the care a guardian provides, has a lot of opportunities for mismanagement or being used for the wrong reasons. We think very paternalistically and like, oh, someone someone needs help. Oh, yeah, well, you have good intentions. Be a guardian. And we don't really think about the individual and that... If there's a guardianship, it really needs to be tailored to what they need. That's Sophia Alvarez. Her statement reflects one of the common sentiments I heard from sources. Advocates pretty openly talk to me about how guardianship systems often fall short of the ideal situation where people keep as much of their independence as they can. Christina Butero is the guardianship coordinator for the Arc of the Pikes Peak region. The organization provides guardianship for people with disabilities. She said she's seen guardianship used as a tool to try to change people's behavior, which is not the point of it. One of the issues that we often see is 
agencies may want us to step in as a legal guardian if someone is just not doing what they want them to do, using it more as a behavior intervention tool than actual guardianship. Part of the problem is knowing, is guardianship absolutely necessary? What is the real need? Does the person just make poor decisions because they want to make those poor decisions? Or is it truly a lack of capacity? I do a lot of training with families to think about decision-making, and that's how I pose it. You know, really the decision-making after someone turns 18. Um, and one of my first statements is always that I hate guardianship. I just hate it, even though that's my capacity and my agency. And again, I come from an advocacy organization. I want to protect every single right that we can protect for people. And well, the guardianship statute is written very loose that people should be able to be involved in decisions and should have some of that autonomy and self-determination. That doesn't always happen for folks. And so that's why I hate it. Um, I hate that guardianship is used as a tool to try to change someone's behavior versus why are they doing whatever it is they're doing? What are they trying to communicate to us? Um, I think we just jump to guardianship way too quickly. Before Sophia Alvarez came to Colorado, she worked as a guardian and legal counsel to Nebraska's Office of Public Guardianship. Alvarez said putting a person who needs guardianship in the least restrictive environment possible is a pretty common requirement in laws around guardianship systems. But in her experience in Nebraska, that didn't always necessarily happen. She said full guardianships were the most common situation. A full guardianship means the person appointed can choose where their ward lives, how their money's spent, make decisions about medical care. I think you have to have a fundamental belief that you're not there to control that person's life. You're there to assist because they can't make certain decisions but they're still capable of running their own life and making their own decisions. So I think it just kind of depends on how, well, I guess maybe what your philosophy is as a guardian. As I talked with Alvarez, I got the sense she didn't want to throw guardianship systems under the bus, but she also wanted to talk candidly about the flaws they're vulnerable to. She said instances that end up being full guardianships, even if it's not what a person needs, probably happen that way because, candidly, Designing a really tailored guardianship and regularly reevaluating the person's needs takes a lot of work and time. Maureen Welch is an activist who has been working for years to hold guardianship systems in Colorado accountable. She has an adolescent son with Down syndrome. She believes social programs or supported decision-making systems to help people with diminished capacity or disabilities are better approaches than just funneling those people through the court system. And it's just interesting to me that a lot of times we want to medicalize social issues. And I kind of feel that way with OPG, is that we're judicializing, I don't know if that's a verb, but we're making things into a legal issue when it's really a social issue. And I feel right now in Colorado, everything is 100% or nothing. We don't have any gray, it's black or white. You either have a guardian or you don't. And I'm hoping by the time my son turns 18, 18 that we'll have a little bit more options within the state. Christina Butero of the ARC said by the time a petition for guardianship comes in front of a judge or a magistrate, it's pretty unlikely they'll rule that the person doesn't need a guardian. In the court system, she said making sure a person has a lawyer available to help them could reduce situations where guardians are appointed unnecessarily. Here in El Paso County, that's not often done when someone is 
when a petition has been filed for guardianship, but I think if we appointed attorneys for those um, respondents, then there may be better opportunity to look at what else do we need to present to the, the court to show that a person in fact does have capacity, doesn't need a legal guardian, or maybe they only need just someone to make medical decisions and every other aspect of guardianship is not necessary. So limiting that guardianship to whatever is truly needed. Where I think we end up with unnecessary guardians really is when families just been told you need to do this and they don't know the process. At the ARC, we do help families with the paperwork portion of it. We're not attorneys, so we're not giving legal advice, but we do help families just answer those questions about completing the petition paperwork. It, honestly, at when someone is getting ready to transition to adulthood, that 18 magic age, the guardianship piece of it is the easiest piece that a family has to deal with. Oftentimes families are very intimidated by the process, but the paperwork is quite easy to complete. It's really just marking some boxes, answering a couple of questions. So it's, it is by far the easiest things, thing that families will have to tackle when their loved one is turning 18. So when families are doing that, sometimes they will have disinterested third parties actually serve the paperwork to the person without letting the person know that you have the right to an attorney. You don't need, if you don't want this guardianship, you can say no to it. You know, far too often young adults are just doing what their mom and dad want them to do. So I do think if in every case an attorney was assigned and it, and it doesn't need to be, the attorney doesn't need to have a lot of hours with the person, more just to check in, you know, do you want this? The court, the court visitor's report actually goes over that, but I don't know if those court visitors are actually asking the person themselves, do you want an attorney? Do you want someone to represent you? So it's, it's available, I just don't know how well we are implementing it. Maureen Welch said even though she believes Sophia Alvarez has good intentions for the OPG, she's worried Alvarez is up against entrenched philosophies that don't really have room for guardianship being really tailored to people's individual needs. So I feel like she is coming into a culture that perhaps she has some other ideas, but the people that are actually making the court decisions in making the recommendations as the counsel for the at-risk adult or the judge over the case, they don't have that kind of a, an approach to guardianship. They have the all-or-nothing approach. So it's going to be hard for her to operate a progressive Office of Public Guardianship when the very people that are giving the court orders don't see it that way. Colorado's office has a lot of pressure to show there's a real need for its services. Funding for the pilot program isn't guaranteed past 2023. Then the legislature will have to decide whether to continue the office. And depending on who you ask, the process of getting Colorado's office up and running before the 2019 bill came along has been a study in a well-intentioned idea getting stuck in the bureaucratic weeds or it was set up to fail. A 2017 bill laid out a path for a public guardianship system, Notice I didn't say it actually created a system. 
The bill created a commission that had to raise $1.7 million from gifts, grants, and donations before establishing a public guardianship office. That bill didn't allocate any state money. By 2019, the commission had raised about $2,000. When I looked into why the fundraising efforts struggled so much, a concrete answer was elusive. Representative Mark Snyder carried the bill last year that finally got the OPG up and running. More on that later. Snyder was then in his first session in the legislature. He said even he had trouble getting candid answers from healthcare providers like hospital associations why they didn't contribute to the Public Guardianship Commission's fundraising. I will say in 2017, even though it was before my time, the understanding was that the healthcare providers and hospital associations we're going to be stepping up to the plate and helping to fund a public guardianship effort. Obviously, that didn't happen. I have tried to get an answer as to why, and I'm, to be honest with you, I have not gotten a, a definitive or, frankly, a frank answer from our medical industry as to why they have not picked up this cause. And I realize that they, they probably are able to recover a lot of the costs of care through uh, federal programs, Medicare, Medicaid. But I've only been around less than two years, but I already know that trying to work your way through the Byzantine, complex world of medical care is a, quite a challenge. Uh, it has been a, quite a Gordian knot to try and untangle. The way I've kind of described the piece of this to my editor when I talk about kind of untangling why the commission that was created in 2017 had so much trouble raising funds to get the office started. The way I've kind of described it to my to my editor is it seems like a question that I'm going to ask 10 different people and get 10 different answers about. You're, you're absolutely right on track. And that is the, the principal reason I got from them was, well, we think that this is really a government function. And we don't think the private industry should be funding what is essentially we view as a government function. So I've gotten different answers when I talk to the hospitals in Grand Junction. They're very interested and you know, they think there's a definite need and they see a real benefit from the Office of Public Guardianship. But that's been more the exception than the rule. The rest are kind of just sitting back and I think waiting to see where we go. But it's my intention to put the heavy ask on the hospitals and the medical community to say, okay, we have a problem that's of a pretty, a pretty large scope here, and I think we work together, we can make better outcomes for a lot of our seniors who are right now just languishing. A 2018 report from the Public Guardianship Commission said the commission approached the Colorado Hospital Association for financial support. The report stated the CHA supports the Office of Public Guardianship, but, quote, did not see a path to funding from individual healthcare systems or other healthcare services providers. I contacted the CHA to find out more details about that position. The organization didn't return my request. Their current chair and a past chair of the commission also didn't return my requests for an interview for this story. But the sentiment Snyder talked about, the hesitancy of private entities to contribute because the OPG is really a government function, is the one I came across the most from people responsible for the office. The Public Guardianship Commission's interim report said the commission approached 87 people and organizations for financial support. And past commission chair Deb Bennett Woods mentioned the pushback during a Senate committee hearing for last year's bill that allowed the office to start operating. 
The Commission has concluded that gifts, grants, and donations as the sole source of funding is not now, nor was it actually ever feasible. Despite initial optimism based on the widespread stakeholder support, we found numerous barriers. 87 statewide entities and many more individuals were approached in 2018. Major granting organizations such as the Colorado Health Foundation, Robert Woods Johnson Foundation, and the Rose Foundation advised us directly not to apply because variously we did not meet their funding targets or they did not grant to government agencies or they limited grants to established programs with a track record and so on. Two formal grant applications to the next 50 initiative were denied. Other stakeholder organizations took the position that public services should be publicly funded. And then we had the killer disclaimer that in the event funding targets were not reached, individual and organizational donations could not be refunded but would go into the general fund and never be used for intended purposes. Maureen Welch is skeptical of the motives behind the gifts, grants, and donations funding structure. She believes the difficulty of raising money that way gave the OPG an out to come back to the legislature asking for more money after they couldn't raise the funds mandated in the bill. No one planned on giving money to that. It was construed that way to pass the bill so that they could come back again and get more money later. That's my personal opinion. And there was some talk that the hospital association would give the money, but then the hospital association actually denied that, and they said, we never told anyone that. Whatever really happened, the legislature circled back to the OPG last year to get it running. House Bill 1045 took out the $1.7 million fundraising requirement. It changed the funding structure to a combination of $427,000 in general fund money and cash funds from probate filing fees. Fees were increased to cover that part of the funding. Mark Snyder, who carried the 2019 bill, has a background in trust and estate law. But the history of Colorado's OPG actually wasn't something he followed closely before his election to the legislature. Certainly, by being a practitioner, I have been around the periphery, and it had become a growing concern to me that there, are, there were an undetermined number of people, elderly folks generally, who, you know, there was no formal process for anyone to advocate for them. So the more research I did, I found out there were some successes in local areas. For instance, I'm down here in the Pikes Peak, Colorado Springs region. But it was a very uh, scattered and piecemeal approach, and it really depended on a few really hardworking volunteers who would take it upon themselves to, to reach out and find these folks. Snyder said he wants to use the Denver pilot program to gauge the demand for its services, reassess the funding model, and use the demonstrated need for public guardianship to try again getting funding support from healthcare providers. Then, of course, I have, uh, I'm making some assumptions, such as that I, I will be reelected in November, but it's always been my plan to revisit this come next fall and, and then really start looking at, you know, hopefully we'll have then at least enough empirical data under our belt. But then we'll put the, the ask really on, whether it's the hospital provider fee, the nursing home penalty cash fund, there's a lot of resources in, the, in medical care. And, and I think I would then be in a position, I think, where we really are not going to take a no for an answer. So that was our hope, is we get it up, we, we establish its effectiveness, and, and really get a better definition of how great the need is out there. And then with that information in hand, go back to the medical providers and say, okay, we have, you know, here's what we have. Here's what we'd like to do going forward. We want to partner with you. We need your help in this. But it was, it just seemed like you had to start somewhere. The pilot program was originally designed to cover the 7th and 16th judicial districts in addition to Denver. 
Representative Matt Soper, a Republican from Delta, said that design was important because it would have given the legislature a comparison of how the pilot program worked between urban and rural districts. But he said the legislature eventually narrowed the program's scope to make it financially viable to pass. Because of funding, we had to cut out the 7th, and then Denver basically uh, footed the bill to slide them into the city and county building. So that's what the bill didn't do, is it didn't include the 7th, so we actually don't know about the rural component. But access to um, public guardianship and like rural Colorado, one, one thing I would say is it's really difficult. In rural Colorado, we just don't have the same access to services like you might have here in Denver. So that's, you know, you know, that's the real challenge that we face. And that's why the state certainly has a vested interest to invest in things like public guardianship. Last year's bill left the possibility of expanding the program open. The final version that Governor Jared Polis signed kept language, saying the office is designed to serve the 2nd, 7th, and 16th districts. It just says the OPG has to start in Denver before expanding to any other districts. I asked Soper whether he believes the pilot program is likely to expand out of Denver. So it allows for services in the 2nd, which is Denver, and then the 7th and 16th judicial districts. But, it, you know, I noticed that the language in the final version said that the office has to provide guardianship services to Denver before it expands out to any other areas. Do you know if there's an intention for the pilot program to expand to those other judicial districts? Or was the, the final language kind of purposely left open? Uh, the short answer is yes. It was purposely left open because... We uh, didn't have the funding to be able to expand it to the 7th, which was my interest, and the 16th. But since Denver stepped up to the plate and said they would provide office space, that kind of changed everything to at least keep the bill alive from a financial point of view. I mean, mean, most members agreed on the policy. It was the finances that became kind of tough, especially at the end of last session. And just kind of thinking about that a little bit more from last session, the um, expansion to the 7th, it's specifically vague because until we could somehow get a new stream of funding, they're not going to expand. And so they'll be relegated to Denver only. Last year's bill definitely gave the OPG a better jump start than in 2017. Despite that, there are still some uncertainties about how the pilot program will operate. For one, the office doesn't have a full picture of the needs it's trying to meet. Sofia Alvarez told me she's worried that if she has to turn referrals away when the office has all the cases it can handle, those people will stop calling and she'll lose track of that need. The difficulty of tracking guardianship needs is exacerbated by the office's current limitation to just serving Denver. At the very least, I'm going to do what I can. And if anything, you know, maybe it just shows this is a drop in the bucket. You know, we weren't able to capture X and Y and Z. But I can tell you this, and extrapolating from that, I think this is the need um, over the state, but we need funds to do the research or, you know, we need some mandates maybe um, to, you know, say, hey, everybody, let's start collecting this data. Every judge kind kind of does things their own way, even if there are kind of rules in place. And so I think until there's a real unified kind of um, plan for collecting and gathering this research, it's just, it's not going to really happen for a while. 
Beyond the OPG, it seems no other organization has gotten an empirical picture of Colorado's unmet needs for guardianship either. That struck me as particularly interesting because the 2017 legislative bill wasn't the first time Colorado's need for a public guardianship system was identified. Several years ago, a committee convened to study guardianship needs in the state put out a report. It used an existing population-based projection model to estimate Colorado would have about 6,000 guardianship cases in need of services and 934 new cases per year. The state court administrator's office confirmed to the committee that Colorado had an average of 1,000 new guardianship cases each year for the 25 years before the committee's report. But because of the complexity and cost of figuring out unmet guardianship needs, the committee recommended the 2014 legislature initiate a study of Colorado's need and estimated costs to meet them. The legislature never commissioned such a study. And beyond the committee's estimate model, I couldn't find any studies or reports that have actually measured the scope of need for public guardianship in the state. Some organizations in Colorado provide volunteer guardian services. The committee report I mentioned obliquely referenced waiting lists. I thought maybe those waiting lists could be used as a proxy for measuring unmet needs. First, I talked to Beth Spencer, an administrative assistant at the Colorado Guardianship Alliance. She said the organization always has a waiting list, but didn't know how long it typically is. She estimated the organization has had as many as 20 to 30 volunteer guardians. Spencer said the Guardianship Alliance takes referrals from across Colorado. The organization has a contract with Rocky Mountain Human Services, she said, which does have paid client managers. That organization works to place people from the Fort Logan and Pueblo Mental Health Institutes. But Rocky Mountain Human Services didn't respond to my request for comment. I did talk to Christina Butero of the Pikes Peak Arc about why she believes a full picture of Colorado's unmet guardianship needs has been hard for any group to gauge. I do think not having a state system for tracking is probably the biggest barrier to knowing what what the need is out there. Part of, I think, what happened with guardianship is for a time, Adult Protective Services, um, each county or region or area, however they're divided, um, did have basically public guardians. Um, many of the individuals that we support through our guardianship program actually had a guardian assigned through Adult Protective Services. And then when Adult Protective Services did away with that function, um, I, that's when I think it became even a bit more difficult to track what the true need is. She said she thinks the difficulty of tracking need also ties back to the entrenched attitude that any adult who has a disability needs a guardian, even though it's not always necessary. We have worked really hard with our adult protective services group um, to get them to start looking at people with IDD differently when it comes to those decisions um, and really looking at is this a case where maybe just advocacy and the right supports in place will help this person be successful or is it a capacity issue so i think that's the other piece of not really knowing is because we're not having that harder conversation about who really needs it when I talked to Sofia Alvarez in January, she said she hoped to have an interim report for the legislature in January 2021. 
I mentioned earlier the necessity of collecting information like how many case intakes the office does, how many people it has to turn away, and people's residence history. For the final report to the legislature in 2023, Alvarez says she also has to report information on, quote, notable efficiencies and obstacles that the office incurred. I'm hoping that I can really lay out these are all the systems issues that our office has to deal and interact with. And if this, there's nothing in place there, just having a guardian isn't gonna help that individual. So I, I think, again, I think this is gonna be very educational for the General Assembly individuals that don't have much um, knowledge about guardianships, um, because I think someone thinks, oh, get a guardian and you're fine. They'll take care of everything. But if, you know, like we said earlier, if the processes and places aren't in place, how do you, how do you help an individual? Alvarez will have to submit that final report to the legislature by January of 2023. Since the office's continuation isn't guaranteed, I asked a few sponsors of the 2019 bill what kind of information collected for the OPG's report they believe will be necessary for them to sell the office to the rest of the legislature. Matt Soper, the representative from Delta, said the office should be used in situations where a person genuinely doesn't have a family member or close friend to step in as their guardian. He said it's also necessary to scrutinize the types of services the guardians are providing. I mean, I would like to know more generalized information about the background of individuals who come and utilize a guardian. Certainly would like to know for sure that they had no, like, next of kin, no immediate family or, or even a close friend who would be able to take this role, that it actually was helping someone who had a, a full need, not just providing a general service. I would want to know what types of steps were taken, whether it was a placement in, say, a, a nursing home or a nursing facility, what, what the actual service entailed of the guardian that was being performed. I mean, those would be the types of things I'd be interested in knowing more about because that, that helps us determine, you know, this is being successful, it's utilized properly in the pilot, and then we can make the argument that we should expand this and continue it. Representative Mark Snyder said he wants to be able to show the legislature and stakeholders like hospitals that the OPG serves a humanitarian purpose and makes economic sense at the same time. I think the overriding concern is we are taking care of the most vulnerable folks in our community and we are getting them to a much better, healthier, and dignified existence. So I think the hope would be that we would be able to say we are accomplishing that overarching goal and then also at the same time working with the hospitals and the medical care providers to be able to say, well, look, this person has been in and out of ICU in the hospital for the past eight months. And I mean, I've heard stories of people who have been in, in, in hospitals for years when they're in this condition. But be able to show that, you know, they are a drain. They are part of what is driving up healthcare costs in Colorado. So if we can get them out of that cycle and into a more stable existence where they're properly being advocated for and show that that is an economic benefit not just to the state, but you know, to, to the hospitals, but also to the state of Colorado. That is where we hope we'll be at the end of the study period, be able to document and, and prove that 
This is not only a humanitarian effort, but also one that makes economic sense. That's it for this episode of Hearsay. Thanks for listening. For a bonus session on the process of how courts appoint guardians, check out our Patreon page. You can find it by searching Law Week Colorado. For more episodes of our monthly podcast, follow us on SoundCloud or listen on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.